welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Patricia Norland, author of The Saigon Sisters, Privileged Women in the Resistance, published by Northern Illinois University Press, publication date July 15, 2020. Thank you for speaking with me. Of course, Chris. It's my pleasure. So first, tell me, how did you get into uh, studying this subject and writing a book on it? I, in 1985, um, not long after graduating from the School of Foreign Service here in D.C., I got a job at something called the Center for International Policy. It turned out to be a nonprofit that also had a an office within it called the Indochina Project. And the Indochina Project was co-sponsored by a number of church groups, the Mennonite Central Committee, American Friends Service Committee, the Quakers, Church World Service, and it was funded by the Christopher Reynolds Foundation, with the overall idea being, at that time, and it's hard to imagine given our robust economic and even military relationship with Vietnam, but in the mid-80s, there was hardly any back and forth, and uh, the Christopher, and further, the Department of Treasury, we had a, a trade embargo on Vietnam, so things were really, really buttoned down. And the Christopher Reynolds Foundation decided that in the absence of government-to-government relations, it would be useful to have a small office that promoted people-to-people exchanges in, in different domains, whether the sciences or the arts or authors. And so the Indochina Project was set up in order to um, arrange those kinds of personal exchanges. So I was on a tr- my first trip to Vietnam in 1988 with a Church World Service group, and it was then that I met my first Saigon sister. Mm-hmm. She this was Win T Wan, who actually by coincidence uh, Cornell chose to put on the cover of the book, which has which is kind of a nice subtle. But uh, Wan was a social worker, and. CWS had decided that in addition to brief, we were there to try and get a, a closer assessment of what life was like on the ground mm. in Saigon at the time in Vietnam. So in addition to the somewhat canned uh, presentations in government offices um, or meeting with other diplomats, uh, Church World Service had the good idea to invite uh, one, as a social worker, to give us an informal, off-the-record snapshot of what was going on in terms of social work and social dis- displacement after not long after the war. So Winky Wan, we met, we met in, at somebody's house, really low-key, and she gave us one of the most, you know, quite a different story of what was going on. She talked about the homelessness, she talked about drugs, she talked about disillusion, um, unemployment. <laughs> it was a little different picture than we'd been hearing. So I went up to her afterwards and I said, you know, thank you for this very um, uh, different and, and honest uh, assessment of what's going on. It, it's better to know what's really going on to better advise others on, on what appropriate aid or what kinds of exchanges to promote. 
And um, I said, by the way, I was very impressed with her English. She spoke beautiful English. I, I didn't know at that time that she had studied in the United States. But I said, where did you go to school here in Saigon? And the three most surprising words popped out of her mouth. Lycée Marie Curie. <laughs> and I thought, hmm, that's interesting. And she said, yes, it is. It's just a few blocks down the street here, and it is. Um, it was the premier French colonial school for girls back in the 40s and 50s. And um, she had gone there, and she'd gone there with a number, with a handful of friends um, that she still had to this day. And that was sort of the beginning. That was the first Saigon sisters, uh, of, first to meet her. And um, it was through her that uh, one by one I got to meet the other eight ladies whose stories are told in their own words in the Saigon sisters. Mm -hmm. And so just for the listeners, just a brief summary, uh, the importance of these three women. Well, they're the subjects of the book, but uh, I guess other women, or I'm sorry, nine women. Um right. They uh, they basically gave up privileged lives to um, to become part of the rebe the, the rebellion and and uh, fight against both the French and the U.S. Uh, during the Indochina wars. Um, so that is exactly right. Okay, Chris. I, cool. Yeah, no, and that 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 was the that was the striking thing because the bottom line is a lot of people in privilege, as I'm sure happens, as we know happens in other. War zones. Um, if, if, if there's a chance to get out, if there's a chance to continue education in safety and peace, there, people do that. Mm -hmm. But what is unique about this group of women is that while the children of the privileged, indeed, their fathers, many of them were working directly for the colonial government, although some also leading double lives, mm -hmm. but the point is, something happened in their youth at Lycée that actually made them think that they wanted a different path than being sent away to school. Mm. And that's what makes them unique, and I'm not aware of any other. Um, in fact, it's interesting, there are many Lycée Marie Curie and, and the boys' counterpart school, mm. the Lycée Chasseau-Lobat, there are many alumni associations around the world, Australia, France, uh, here in Northern Virginia, of, of those who attended those schools, but whose parents did ensure <laughs> that they got out, and um, they did not they did not fight for the independence the way these young privileged girls did. Okay, um, so tell me then, how how do you break down this book? Is it a chronological history, or is it um, thematic? Yes, no, it is chronological, Chris. There are basically two parts. Um, one is the the cause. Uh, this is what this is what uh, enveloped them. They felt the the, the cause that their generation and they uh, were being called to was independence to help fight for a free Vietnam that's not occupied by the Japanese or the French. And um, so that's the first part, basically, from their youth as uh, initially carefree girls in the cocoon of a French lycée wearing Fran uh, Fran European uh, skirts and shirts and braiding their hair in pigtails and studying French. And in many, most of them <laughs> excelled, were better, got better grades in French language and literature than their little French classmates. <laughs> 
but um, that f- the first half traces them from their youth in their 40s in that in the Lycée through the, the 1950, which turned out to be a pivotal year. They're in their late teens. They're 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 basically graduating from the equivalent of high school. They're getting their baccalaureate, and um, and they and they are scattered. They are scattered. It, uh, some go directly. They take off those European skirts and clothes and put on black pajamas, and they go literally overnight into the jungle. A couple um, are sent. They are sent by their parents overseas, but they will come back. And then a few are, as you know, in Asian culture, they, they're, they're the anointed to take care of the elders, the parents. They're stuck somewhat in Saigon, but they find ways to lead basically double lives to promote work for the resistance and the revolution, but from Saigon itself. So the, these nine women scatter in 1950, and then uh, one by one, they um, they come back to Saigon, and they and uh, so the second half of the book takes it from the Geneva Accords, 1954, which divided the country for two years to, until elections were expected to be held, and then it brings it up through um, post 1975 and the kind of peace, much more difficult than many had hoped for, but at least peace. Uh, came and it talks a little bit about what they did in their retirement and what they how they rekindled their friendships after all those tumultuous years and a lot of suspicion and distrust about what might have happened in the time between they met they studied together at Lycée and mm. and uh, by the time they met up again but 1950 was a particularly pivotal um, uh, year and so a lot of them talk about that. There were three main events that, that really triggered the, the decision for most of them to go into the Maquis, as the resistance was called. Um, there was uh, the death of a, of a student, of a student at Lycée, Chafou Loba, um, he named Chan Van Eun. There were some uh, many students out in the streets in front of the Ministry of Education um, protesting uh, the, the schools had been closed for a certain period, and, and there were hundreds and hundreds of students. And uh, long story short, the, the student, Van Van Eun, is shot, and the students try to protect him. He take him to Churai Hospital, but he dies from a gunshot wound from the French, and um, the students are incensed, and this becomes the National Day of the Student in uh, every January, hence. Then in March, March 19, interestingly, two U.S. warships port at Saigon, and the USS Stickel and the USS Anderson, and this really incenses the students again. Um, it feels like the French are uh, bringing the Americans uh, on board to further uh, suppress them and, and make independence harder and farther out to reach. And then third... Uh, Big event before going into the jungle that I and I'd like to read an excerpt at that point is May first, International Workers' Day, and so that brings out rivers of students and workers and teachers um, in support of of the workers. Mm-hmm. And the, at this point, the one after the other, there's there's such a the 
students are seething and they're just ready to do something other than sit at their desks and, and learn more um, French history. So mm. then um, some of them make this dramatic move, and I'd be, love to read you an excerpt. Please do. I'm speaking with Patricia Norland, author of Saigon Sisters. You can find more information about the book at the Cornell University Press website. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website, warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. If you're interested in other kinds of history, you can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal. Historyrabbithole.com. Thank you for your support. And now back to the podcast. Our parents, this is Tan. Our parents sent us to French schools. In general, people at this time wanted to have a diploma, a good life, to rise in rank and have a career. For us, things were a little different. Ever since we were young, Papa taught us about our glorious history driven by patriotism. He taught us we are Vietnamese and we must chase out the occupiers. He taught us to love the homeland. Even when we joined the Maquis, he only worried because we were girls. Had we been boys, he would have approved right away. That reflected the feudalism in him. He was progressive and modern in sending us to a French school, where we read books by the French, while half of him remained feudal. That tension was the drama in the family. After the August 1945 revolution, the anti-French movement in Saigon brought together many intellectuals. At home, we talked about national heroes and their struggles against foreign invasion. One of the biggest influences, Chris, was um, the music and poems and plays of the time. Mm -hmm. And here, too, Tan is very, very... Um, she captures quite a bit. She says, in the 1940s, songs had to be circumspect and simply evoke historic moments, mm -hmm. like big battles against the feudal Chinese, the victory at the Bakdang River, the brilliance of the battle at Aichi Lang Fortress. Each battle had a song, and its lyrics were distributed and broadcast to students. Aichi Lang tells a story of the Chinese being drawn into a mountain pass where they're ambushed from both sides. It opens with drums pounding and cymbals clanging to capture the drama of the attack. Lu Hu Fu, the composer, annotated the musical notes. Here, beat the drum. Here, strike the cymbal. Papa taught us to play the drums and often recalled the Battle of Aichilang and how we achieved victory over the Chinese. Hmm. It, it's interesting how the motivations, you know, even though they joined a communist group, their motivations feel very almost conservative, you know, nationalism, pride in your country and your, your ethnic group and, you know, uh, singing about war and, and all that sort of thing. So it's kind of an interesting um, dichotomy, I think, in, in a sense. Yes, yes. I think you're, ex you're exactly right. There was a very deep-seated love of country and homeland and this, and this really rich culture that keeps evoking it, you know, um, and in, including in things like like poems. Um, as Tan says, in the Maquis, people carried a carnet, a small notebook, or a diary with verses and poems, usually by poets from other countries. 
We've dedicated passages to people we knew who had been martyred on a certain day. The first martyr in my family was a handsome man, not even 20 years old. The French captured him, tortured him, and stretched him out in the sun to die. I wrote a dedication in my carnet based on an article his father wrote about his son's death. She wrote, In the struggle of the universe, each person is a combatant. Life is an endless struggle. To stop struggling is to fail, and failure means death. To stop struggling is to await slavery. The combatant is most fully alive, living next to death, but also living above death. Hmm. I mean, she's about 18 <laughs> when she's writing that. Yeah. Um, but again, to this, this angle of the, of the culture, um, I'd like to just share one other poem, well, two other poems that she talks about. Hmm. She's I filled my carnet with poems by the poet of the revolution, Tohu, imagining a bond with him because he published his first poems in clandestine journals while also studying at a French lycée. Hmm. He combines the revolutionary fervor of the time with the traditions of our people. He lived with the peasants for many years, and his poems touched many different kinds of people. One of his poems I copied into my carnet was titled Mother. It starts, who will return to the village to tell mother that this evening, far away, her child thinks of her? Aren't you cold, mother, in this bitter wind, blowing from the mountain, mingling with the rain? Mother is cold, planting rice, feet in the mud, hands pushing the seeds deep down. With each seed she plants, she thinks of her child. And the poem ends, I am going to the distant front. I love you, Mother. Hmm. I love our country like another mother. When the enemy is chased away, I will return forever. Hmm. These are the teenagers. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're soaked in, in, in the anti-French and, and then buoyed up by, by these, these, the, the revolutionary poets and these songs and... Um, and plays, lots of plays that they were putting on as, again, as teenagers. Mm -hmm. um, I can, let me just uh, share one here in, in case there's room for it. Performances for students continue to be held at the French-built municipal theater in downtown Saigon. Organizers found clever ways to weave in inspiring themes. Between two historical plays, Tears of Earth and the Dead, the debt of Meilin, the geographical capital of the Trung sisters, two famous sisters who fought the Chinese, um, a separate scene would be tucked in during the intermission. Girls and boys, dressed in white, recited a poem by a famous musician who had died young. The first words were, Tonight, on the deserted river bank, I leave my wandering soul to go beyond this life, to come back to the distant days, to the souls of those who died in the country. It was an appeal to ancestors from every corner of the country to gather on a deserted river bank and allow us to think of them and all they did. A meditation spoken through a beautiful poem. This was a prayer call to the memory of ancestors who had died for the homeland. So how were these women recruited and once they um and did they know what they were getting into did they experience what they expected or was there a different sort of um outcome when they first joined and well that that 
That is the richness. Even though there are nine of them, they are each different in terms of um, their political consciousness. Uh, one is completely non-political, and she, she's, she's, she says, I never liked politics, and I, I still don't like politics the last time I talked to her a few years ago, to others who just felt that uh, whatever was asked of them, however severe or however hard um, they were, they would do it. And then the others were sort of in between. But, for example, let me just read one thing, one other example here. This is Min, who is um, a sister of Tan, and um, she did stay in Saigon, but she has an interesting, she was the eldest of the, of, of the three biological sisters, and she said she drew on another source of this need to make change. My patriotic spirit awakened while I studied at a French lycée. From the time we were little, every morning we had to salute the French flag, the tricolore. We did not even know what the Vietnamese flag looked like. I had to look to a La Russe encyclopedia to find a flag of Vietnam displaying a dragon on a yellow field, which I figured stemmed from past dynasties. Each time we saluted the tricolore, I began instead to see the yellow flag in my mind. We read pamphlets about the exploits of French youth under the German occupation. We read books from the Jeune Garde that were filled with progressive ideas about Soviet youth. I was enthralled to learn about these clandestine activities, the camouflage side to life in the city, the ardor of young militant patriots, the sabotage under the, undertaken for the cause, and the horrible arrests under the Hitlerian regime. In 1945, we also read books about the youth in the French Resistance. We nourished ourselves on this literature, on the feeling of people in France resisting the Nazis. Part of our awakening was due to the same patriotic awakening as in the French. As early as 1943, students of my father's generation had begun to organize musical performances. We went as little kids and chased each other up and down the aisles. It was just, and another lady, Twin, she says there was too much injustice. French cadres, even at the lowest levels, made ten times more than a Vietnamese at the same level. There were too many prisons. People were illiterate and had so little, even in the villages, where only a tiny dispensary took care of many sick people. We desperately needed independence and liberty. There were good French people, but their way of doing things was outdated. They had projects to develop the country, but their methods were bad. It could not last. Another lady, Kukswun, draws on and gives us a sense of how strongly they felt the injustice, which so they just they felt that they had to throw themselves into this. And I, I think to answer your question, Chris, I, I think some of them had no idea just how hard and how demanding and how difficult it would be, but but some of these voices really give you the sense that, to some extent, how would you do otherwise? Mm -hmm. Let me just mention Kuk Swun, who um, talks about another reason they felt they had to do something, and this relates to the Japanese occupation. Mm -hmm. The worst part came in 1944, when starvation killed hundreds of thousands of people. Japan coerced peasants into planting crops other than rice and reserve stockpiles of rice for their troops. 
Japanese and French soldiers burned rice for fuel, even as our people starved. A, pe a period of awakening began after the Japanese invaded. After seeing the French bowing to the Japanese and witnessing French and Japanese soldiers callously contribute to the death by starvation of two million of our compatriots, it would have been impossible not to develop a firm conviction. Things had to change. The Japanese did provide one valuable lesson. The French, until now the undisputed, conceited, and fiercely proud masters of the country, had been relegated to a subordinate role. This was one of the factors waking us up to the realization that if the Japanese, Asians like us, could show superiority over the French, why not us? She goes on to say that at Marie Curie, we learn the same subjects as French boys and girls. I reflected on the suffering of our people and drew the inescapable conclusions. We learned a lot and came to know as much as French boys and girls would know about the natural, physical, and social sciences. We even learned the Gaulois are our ancestors. So my view of the world was that it was divided into those who are predestined to go to heaven and the rest who are predestined to go to hell. Our people appear to belong to the second category because of the poverty, misery, and obscurantism in which they lived. For them, life was nasty, brutish, and short, while the French and other people received and enjoyed God's gifts and privileges. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So these women were, they, they, had to, they just knew they had to become patriots, and um, that that they had to have their own revolution. Mm -hmm. So where did they, once they joined the revolution, where did, um, where, where did they end up um, working and fighting? Right. Well, some of the most interesting uh, or, or unusual aspects of this book is how much detail several of the women provide about about life in the Maquis. Mm -hmm. And I'm very grateful to um, the historian Christopher Gosha, who wrote a foreword to the book that gives a very nice historic frame. He wrote the Penguin History of Modern Vietnam, mm -hmm. and he has, it's one of the best books. I mean, there's so many, um, but his is, is really well written. It's there's so many threads. Um, but as he says kindly in the foreword, it's unusual to get this degree of personal description and reflection on what it's like to live, <laughs> move with the troops and live with the resistance in the jungle. And um, just a couple of little examples I could share with you there. And then we'll talk about um, other things that some of the women did. Okay. Um, at, the, in, at the camp in the jungle, we fashioned everything out of tree trunks tied together using liane, creepers that festoon the forest. Tree trunks were lashed together to make sturdy beds and chairs. In the kitchen hut, a primitive mud stove had two large holes opening on top and one on the side in which to feed wood. Two pipes ran out the back, directing the smoke several meters away. Our staple food was manioc. It grows quickly over a few months and fills the stomach. Each morning, a metal rod wrapped against the door of our huts to announce time to get up. After the 5 a.m. reveille, we mechanically folded our mosquito nets and sheets and stuffed them into our backpacks with our extra set of black pajamas. 
backpack on, we reported outside and counted off by number. We learned to move as a unit. Right, forward, left, rest. We looked forward to bathing in the stream by the camp. Boys walked a few hundred meters away and jumped in without any clothes. We jumped in with clothes on, not just to preserve our modesty, but so we could wash our clothes at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Girls, of course, had to deal with their menstrual periods and made sanitary napkins out of pieces of mosquito netting folded over several times for absorbency. We soaked it in mud to dye it brown or in crushed leaves to turn it green. Nothing white, which could be seen from the air, could be left out to dry. I used strips of mosquito nets tied together to make sanitary straps to hold the napkin in place. At the same time, we remained constantly alert. Backpacks at the ready if we had to de decamp. Everything had to fit in a backpack. We each had two sets of pajamas, one to wear, one to carry, along with a canvas raincoat and hat. Many packed a tiny tin of jibs brand toothpaste. Fitted with a wick and filled with oil, it could also serve well as a lamp. Hmm. Papers, maps, and all documents were folded into baskets at either end of carrying poles. And the poor cook, laid down by pots and casseroles, looked like a one-man bazaar. <laughs> Walk, walking single file, file, we walked. We followed each other out, uh, each other by the light of, light of the moon. We had to monitor each other because by early morning, any one of us risked falling down for lack of sleep. Hmm. I should mention one, the very first one to go to the Maki was Tuk Sun, who went in 1949, hmm. and she has a very, very interesting little story that I will share in case there is time for it, and then hmm. we'll move on to some others. Okay, yes. I'm speaking with Patricia Norland, author of The Saigon Sisters, you can find more information about the book at the Cornell University Press website. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website, warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. If you're interested in other kinds of history, you can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. And now back to the podcast. In July 1949, I went into the jungle. I wanted to see the Maquis and wanted to be among the first to go. A few girls that Marie Curie knew, I joined along with one other girl. I was unafraid. I left with a few things, black pajamas, a black and white checkered scarf, a pen, and a watch. I also brought something to give to the cause, a ring with three diamonds. The first day, we traveled by taxi about 100 kilometers southwest of Mithal, a town occupied by the French. A liaison agent appeared and stopped the car. We got out and were taken to a pastor's home to wait. Early one morning, another agent led us to a sampan, and for a whole day, we navigated streams and canals deeper and deeper into the jungle. We didn't know where we were going. We moved constantly until we reached a designated camp, which we soon learned also served as a base for printing pamphlets. I attended the three-month training course for young people and students. So she's attending this three-month training course, and then one evening at 5 o'clock, I heard the air alert. French fighter planes swooped in as part of an operation. I figured it was targeting a high-level de delegation that had come to speak to us. They came
came in full force. The group of us, boys and girls, had been working in a print shop. Boys quickly hauled the printing machine and typewriters into stamp hands and rode away. We buried the papers, and then we each tried to find a place to hide. The order given to anyone without combat duties was to run to the outer limits of the theater of operation. French planes flew so low we could see the faces of the pilots. Paratroopers hung in the sky, and the military planes swooping overhead fired guns to protect them. The planes did not drop bombs, but they shot at everything that moved. When a plane flew over, my heart skipped a beat, and I shut my eyes to the inevitable bullet, to the death that would follow. Every few hundred feet, I fell into the mud, not sure I would rise again. But after a week, we, we came back full circle to our first camp. The land was burned and desolate. Huts lay charred, surrounded by swollen carcasses of buffalo, cattle, pigs, and chickens. A nauseating smell drifted from the dead animals. Thick smoke rose from the burning crops. We had to rebuild everything. It's just to say, <laughs> yeah. they, they really... They really did feel they they couldn't fit this out. Yeah. So uh, let me turn um, towards how you did your research for the book. Um, So it involved interviews with these women, but was there... So tell me about that and and what else um, you did to to complete the project. Sure, Chris. Um, And (laughs) I feel so strongly about these women's voices, and I, I, I appreciate whatever can be included. Mm-hmm. So so after meeting Juan in 1988 and, and meeting a few of the others, I, I came back and I was fortunate enough to get a small grant from the Association for Asian Studies. Mm-hmm. And um, at the same time, I got a little contract to for a, a children's book that need, they needed somebody to profile a child in Vietnam. It was some, a series called Children of the World by Gareth Stevens, publishing in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. And so it was a little serendipitous because I figured I could ask, I could both go back and interview the sisters and uh, get some help to, uh, to help write this little book about uh, profiling a, a young child in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So I left the Indochina Project, and um, you're probably too young, but I bought, I went to Radio Shack and bought three boxes of Maxell cassettes, um, and I loaded those up. At this time, it was very hard to get visas, as, as I had said at the beginning. At this time, there was really very little back and forth, except uh, Vietnamese diplomats to the United Nations. Mm-hmm. But through good luck and um, being at Ingo's Turner Project and knowing some Vietnamese diplomats, um, I was able to get us. Actually, I think the foreign minister at that time had to sign off on a six-week visa, but I'm very grateful he did. And so I went armed with my cassettes um, at the end of 89 and just spent a lot of time. I was very fortunate also in that um, at at that time it was very hard to be seen with Americans, frankly. Hmm. Um, It's only because these women were having been born in the early 30s that they were already in their late 50s and didn't, I think they felt a little more comfortable. Um, But... They identified a young friend who had also been to the lycée who had a, a home and a room to rent. And uh, Tien uh, had to go to her neighborhood. Um, you know, everything was said. Very every every everybody was being watched, and everything had to be controlled. And so she had to go to the, her local her neighborhood policeman and explain who who uh, 
who I was and why I was staying there for six weeks. And she only told me quite recently, I'm still in touch with her as well, that um, she, wrote, she wrote down on the form that I was famille lointain, which means, you know, distant family, which is really quite funny. Um, but I pre- it, it, it was a good finesse, and um, I was able to lodge with her, and, and the women, women would come to the come to the spare room and, and, and we would have interviews. Sometimes we went out to dinner and I got to meet some of their husbands and children. And uh, some we even went to visit um, Madame Lan, who was their friend. They only learned Vietnamese uh, at the Lycée Curie by a Vietnamese teacher who taught it as a second language. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were greatly inspired by her because she wore very simple alley eyes and her hair in the tradition, a traditional little chignon, little bun, and she was very unpossessing. But she taught them again the great love of of their culture, and um, she taught them the the epic poem, the Kim Ven Kyu, which um, the teacher called described as a diamond, and uh, you could read it from a different angle every and still see its, its enormous beauty. And all the women refer to her as, as yet another inspiration to, to defend their homeland and, and free Vietnam. Um, but so we got to meet a number of other people who had uh, inspired them, including a, a lady named Madame May, who inspired the social worker, Juan, um, by, because she was, in the, she was the vice minister of social work under the provisional revolutionary government. Um, Madame Mez was quite a striking person to meet. She, in her little house, there, there was sort of a three-point, uh, like a triangle of photos. She had lost three of her sons, uh, one during the Tet Offensive and two actually before that. But she, um, she was happy to meet, and there is a little, um, a little bit of her interview in the book as well. Mm-hmm. Did, did any of these women um, have or show you any items that they kept uh, from the war, you know, any photographs or anything, or did they sort of put all that behind them? I should have mentioned that. It's a great point, Chris, too, especially when we would make it a, instead of a one-on-one, we would have a big lunch or dinner with everybody, and each person would bring some chaya or some banseo, different tasty things and we'd have we just sit around and talk and that for those that they would several of them brought little rusty metal tins and opened them up and shared mainly um, black and white photos uh, everything from sort of the two inch to 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 larger ones a few one had a little national liberation front tin that he she treasured um, and then there's there's a really touching thing that happened at, at one of the last reunions, which was that uh, Cook Swan, the one who the very first to go to the jungle, um, brought out, she opened her wallet and brought out a tiny little piece, slip of paper, and unfolded it, and it turned out to have been a letter that Tan wrote to her for Tet in 1950, just before the the year of change and, uh, and rebellion, um, and it was from Tan inviting Tuxlan to their, her house for Tet and alluding to, again, uh, 
a uh, famous uh, Vietnamese play about two guards who uh, who are friends, um, and it's and Tan did not know, and this was what, from 1950 to 1989, almost 40 years. Tan didn't know that that the that the invitation still existed, much <laughs> less that Huxtlan carried it with her everywhere uh, in her wallet. Hmm. So you're you're at, you're you're exactly right, Chris, in the sense that. Um, Many of them had not shared these photos with each other, and I, I was kind of happy. Well, first of all, I'm just incredibly grateful that um, overcoming cultural and perhaps some political reservations to open up to a Westerner, much less an American, um, I feel that um, I'm glad. One uh, nice thing for them is that um, they learn more about each other. There, there was still opening up, up going on because of all the all the uh, tumult uh, of the intervening years between 1950 and especially uh, 1975. Mm-hmm. There are many stories where people, those who had been best buddies at the lycée after 1975 were afraid to, to go and visit each other at their homes because they just didn't know. Maybe they somebody had turned, maybe somebody had worked for the Americans, somebody had mm-hmm. not come back. Um, so they, uh, I, I would be happy to think that um, this project also helped them get to know each other um, and bring back some of those memories that I think in numerous cases had been tamped down. Mm-hmm. So during the research, uh, what did what what did you find out that most surprised you? I do believe that it comes back to our earlier point, Chris, that there was really a much easier path <laughs> these women could have taken. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, being bombed by the French and, and and or living in the in the jungle and moving in snakes and malaria and leeches and 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 you know, these little children of privilege, privilege, some of whom were chauffeured to the lycée, some of you know they had maids, they 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 had anything they wanted, um, but it just comes back to that. Uh, they saw the bigger picture. They felt that there was no way to turn their back on trying to fight for independence, and that 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 really really stands out as the paramount thing. And and you know there is there is delu- this disillusionment. Uh, it's a very hard piece uh, after 1975, and several of them again are, are I think fairly forthcoming um, that there's a lot of disappointments and tensions between northerners who came down and took positions ahead of southerners and things like that mm. so it was not a it was not a glorious piece but it was peace you know and after reading through their stories um, I can understand that uh, just having peace was was uh, was already quite a bit mm. something. I did stay in good touch with them after I came back, and um, and then, you know, I, I, uh, I, I having gone to the School of Foreign Service, I did not end up joining the Foreign Service and was uh, able to be posted in, I guess I should say, Ho Chi Minh City um, for four years and was able to um, see them socially. I mean, I had to be a little careful because I was obviously working at the Consulate General, mm-hmm. but nevertheless, um, we were able to stay in good touch. So. 
I was able to um, add some updates about their so-called retirement years, though some of them work right to the right to the end. Hmm. But um, that that's included um, as well. Was there a as you were interviewing them? Was there any question that uh, that you really probed um, that you really wanted an answer to, and maybe you probed a little deeper to to reach a conclusion? I think that. There are, you know, there are nine, nine, nine different stories, and and again, a spectrum of of uh, willingness to talk, describe it. Some some are very, very, uh, very disappointed with with what happened, and the vision of working for an equal and just uh, equal society with justice for all um, did not happen. And there's there's. There's definitely a lot of disillusionment that was shared, and also the price, the personal price that was paid. Um, there, there, that comes that comes through as well. Mm-hmm. Do you? Uh, and you don't have to give names, but do you feel like any of them would have done it differently? Oh, that's such a great question, Chris. I don't think so, but. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it was just it, it the injustice could not go on. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just on every front they they could not they could not do differently. But mm-hmm. that's that's just my own assessment, and um, I, I, that's just my own guess. So. Wh- and again, you know, you don't need to give names or particulars, but as you spoke to them, did you feel they still had the same patriotic fervor or, you know, pride in what they did when they were young? Or did you note how much of a note of sadness was there, you know, or maybe dis- you said there's some disappointment, but when talking about the past, did you still sense a, a, a pride? Yes. Yes, very much. And I do think we should, if there's time, I'd love to just talk, touch a little bit on um, the American uh, presence there. Ironically, oh, by the, the one of the nine who went to study in Wisconsin, <laughs> Juan, she got a Catholic, uh, Catholic scholarship through a, a Belgian priest who was a, originally a very good friend of, of Modin Viem, and... Um, I had the opportunity to interview him in Belgium, and he, his the little uh, sidebar by uh, Father Jacques is is really, really, really revealing. Mm. But Juan ends up going to Viterbo College in Wisconsin and studying social work, and, she, and her family was very wealthy. And her, she had a brother who worked who was a translator for General Westmoreland. She had a sister who worked for the U.S. Information Service at the Embassy, but Juan comes back from Wisconsin and um, during the Geneva Accords and tries to help out with using her social work skills to, to deal with all the uh, refugees coming down from the north during the two year period before elections. Mm-hmm. But then what is so interesting is Juan, it, it's held against her, of course, that she went to the, ever went to the United States. But um, or that she had a Catholic scholarship, but she through her social work she she has some fascinating 
um, observations about the United States, and I'll just share a few of those mm-hmm. with you. When I first returned, I was on the list of people invited to important occasions at the U.S. Embassy. I was even invited to meet Vice President Nixon and his wife. I never went. We always say French are very nice in France and very colonialist in the colonies. Americans were the same, exactly the same. As soon as they came, they became master of the situation, and I was against that attitude from the beginning. Working in social work, I was furious at the huge imposed programs to spend U.S. money, but we saw that it was really to back the war. I had American friends like the Camdens, a couple of American officers who were distraught by the direction of events. She was a social worker. They became sickened with what they saw and left before the end. At one time, Mr. Camden urged his wife, please tell Juan to be careful. We had good friends like that, but we really thought the Americans were an occupation army, a military occupation. Very soon, huge social problems were created by all the prostitution and delinquency. Hmm. Too much money flowing in. Exactly, exactly. Hmm. She makes one more interesting observation. I often say it's thanks to the Americans that socialism developed. I would not have taken sides so definitively if they were not here to push me into the arms of socialism. The Americans were so stupid, so inhuman, so childish in how they imposed themselves. I can overcome my feelings towards individuals, but I never thought I would go back to the U.S. She does go back to visit a uh, relative. But um, she says, after thought, as a human being, I had negative feelings about that period, but I turned that anger to work for my country. How can an ant fight with an elephant? Somehow I thought they would lose because they were so much beside the point. They didn't understand anything about us. Hmm. Did all of these women continue, they continued the fight against um, the Americans when they took over from the French? Yes, yes. Um, One became um, the translator for Madame Linti Bin, the Hmm. foreign minister, for the National Liberation Front, and um, they, she went to live in, in Paris during the Paris peace talks, and she had to leave her children behind in Hanoi, uh, where her husband was working, and, uh, you know, this was during, from 68 on, and during some of the heaviest of the U.S. bombing, and um, it was, it's very poignant the way, she, you know, she's, She's working in Paris, and she has three children. The norm was to send the children out to live in villages, 15 or more kilometers outside of Hanoi, live, live with a family, and, and then parents would uh, bicycle out to visit their kids on, on a Sunday, typically, and uh, their kids <laughs> learned to grow up uh, in a village away from their families, and um, very, very, very difficult stuff. But yes, they um, they continue to support to to fight for for um, for the for for their country. So as they, so I see there was a disappointment after the war um, for gender equality. But during the the fighting, did they was there still inequality of a sort, or did it seem more more neutral overall? That's a great, great question, because as as we touched on earlier, there was an also another motivation was to get away from their feudal fathers. <laughs> mm. 
So these were really strong women who were exposed to liberal education in the lycée, and so they are very strong that way. Um, and I think in some cases they're just so caught up in the fight, in the cause, and they have so much to do. <laughs> um, they, um, they, I think it, they feel that it was they were they were in the right place, and that, that, that a better, equal, a more equal society would would emerge from all this all this uh, struggle. Mm-hmm. I imagine the whole project was pretty emotional for you. Um, if you if you're willing to, was there any? Do you want to discuss any particularly moving moment you had uh, dealing with them? And it can be either a sad or or a happy moment, whatever you prefer. I would like to share with you what they the story. They, as as one as one as Shen said, they they were taught to put the I aside, and 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 you know that's that's really hard on relationships, isn't it? Um, family, and there's um, there's one really there was something that. Frank, the Tun's younger sister, called being a visiting mother. She, Trang was um, after going into the Maquis, she became an agent, a double agent, working within Saigon, and they actually asked her to live with another agent to pose as a couple and be a liaison to people in the jungle um, and, and uh, distribute leaflets, uh, gather medicines to send out. Um, but she already had a daughter um, by her great uh, her gro- one of the few great loves in all of this. It happened with her trunk and her husband in the Maquis. But then he went north in 1954, and uh, they thought at the, at the most they would be only separated for two years. But uh, it didn't turn out that way. And she described um, that how hard it was to live with another agent. And she had to give her daughter to her sister, Min, to live in, in their house. And for many, many years, um, that daughter, Autumn, thought that Min was her mother, mm. not Trang. Even though Trang did her best under very difficult circumstances. She called it being a visiting mother. She would ask her sister to leave Autumn in the pram out on a sidewalk so that she could walk by and snap a picture. Um, it's, it's really it's hard to imagine the impact on, on families and very, 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 uh, you know, excruciating. Mm-hmm. But again, the drive was so strong that, um, and by the way, uh, she, Trang and her daughter still live in Saigon today. And, uh, mm-hmm. Autumn knows exactly <laughs> who her mom is, but it's yeah. it's, it's hard to imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, or just one other quick example: uh, one one of the ladies who, who is, joins a she's in an artistic troupe that performs for the military, and she's she says she she married, but um, they were, they were, lived apart. She said, "I was 31 when my husband left for the army." When we met again, I was 44. He had gained weight and become more nice-looking, but when he saw me, he did not recognize me because I had lost weight and looked older. My Mm. small glasses from the north made me look like an old lady. I have an aunt who looks like me. My husband thought I was her. 
so much separation, um, so much, uh, yeah, just, it's a miracle that they held on to their family ties as they did. Mm -hmm. So, apart from being the story of these women, um, what else do you hope the book will do? What, what, what's the greater impact you see? Well, I, I appreciate that question too, because I've been, I've been thinking a lot about it in, in a couple of ways. One on the, as a former foreign, foreign service person, I would like to think that there is some, that the people who conduct foreign policy or really any American, um, would take, a chance, an opportunity to read in their own words the stories of people who were enormously impacted by our country. Um, I just think we can learn. I just still believe we can learn from it, although um, uh, reading the Washington Post uh, series in a few months ago on the Afghanistan papers um, makes me worry a little bit that we are just just uh, impervious to 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 finding out why, why it's studying why people don't like to be occupied and bombed and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So I guess that little hope um, uh, remains alive. Um, I just think learning more about other cultures, and again, those with such rich uh, poems and plays and songs, um, like a place in Vietnam, That that's not just that culture turned into political will. You know, we need to understand the cultures and languages of, of other countries. I, I, I hope this might be a little reminder of that. And then on another level, I think it's about um, stories of courage and selflessness, which uh, in an era of polarization where, where there's so much us and them, um, maybe, you know, regardless of how much privilege you have, um, you still, it's, we're still all in it together, um, mm-hmm. whatever it is. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I do, um, I do hope that they're, even even if it did, it, it didn't turn out exactly as they had hoped in terms of a really equal and just society. Um, just the idea that that I think courage and selflessness are themes that we we can't have enough of, especially in our. Um, Hollywood-driven uh, entertainment world. It's, mm-hmm. um, I think it's. I hope it's helpful and interesting to read about um, people who really did try to do something bigger than themselves. Mm-hmm. So, apart from the number of years it took to uh, research and complete the book, did you have any other difficulties getting it written or published? Oh, <laughs> yes. I'm. I'm not. Stubborn of no stubborn Norwegian stock, and I, I resisted getting a an agent. Although several people urged me to, of course I wanted to be retired from my my foreign service work. Um, uh, but once I did that, I, I I put it out to a number of academic publishers, and several were quite interested. Um, but you know, it's hard to get over the finish line. Um, but I think it's found it's really really good home, and just one little anecdote on that, one of the very first uh, mentors on this project was a man named um, Dr. Quinn Kim Kain, who, uh, he has a very good book on Vietnam, Vietnamese communism, 1920 to 45, I think it is. Um, he 
he told he he told me that this was really important that people should try to understand why even the privileged felt that um, that change had to come, and he was an early proponent. And I, I catch that for him up when he was teaching at Cornell. And sad, tragically, he had a heart attack um, in 1990. Yeah. But he had tried to get the Southeast Asia program at Cornell uh, interested in this, which was actually before I had done all the transcription and translation. So it was kind of premature. But I so appreciated that he tried all those years ago. And I, I just would love to think that um, he's happy, too, that Cornell uh, and NIU mm-hmm. are, are bringing it to fruition, something he... Um, very kindly gave me faith in uh, in the early days, especially being a Vietnamese um, and, uh, and academic of that of that uh, tumultuous period in uh, the first half. Um, so I'm very yes, it wasn't easy, but I I think it came. I think it um, it found its 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 natural home. Good, good. Do you have another writing project in store, or was this your your big? Um your big project to complete? This was my big project to complete. I do I, I do feel there are some very interesting profiles to be done of, of others who straggled east and west and, and, that, and that period, including in Laos. There's a lot of interesting folks that I got to meet when I lived there. Um, but I'm really focused on, um, on getting these women's stories out there, and I, I, I did have I had translated this other book called Beyond the Horizon Five Years with the Khmer Rouge many years ago, um, and because I do think that uh, there are some great books in French that don't that we don't always get exposure to, uh, including books about Southeast Asia. Um, but I don't know that I'm going to do any more translations for now. I'm going to focus on. Saigon sisters sharing their stories, and I really appreciate um, your interest in it. And um, I hope, I hope uh, you have it, uh, enough to go on. Actually, one comment too. It's it's pretty fascinating to me how the French have been both the the perpetrators of Vietnamese grief, but also have um, fed and and helped grow or you know the the synchronization or this i don't know the right word you know have added to vietnamese culture and vice versa you know how they've mm-hmm. both hurt together and and grown together in a sense yes yes i agree i'm i'm very francophone i i love the french culture and language and literature um although you know uh, some of my friends uh, don't particularly care for its current, as they call it, neocolonial approach to parts of Africa. Hmm. But um, <laughs> um, no, I agree. And and these women, I think it's interesting. They 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 love they, they love the French. <laughs> Just hmm. not being a colony. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, they took they took a lot of their um, their uh, inspiration from from exactly. French thinking. Yeah. Exactly. I loved how Chris Gosha in the uh, in his foreword says paradoxically the colonial 
classroom probably provide the best space for these pri- privileged Vietnamese teenagers to discover politics and develop a political activism that would push many of them into action and into the Maquis. I know, exactly. There's, it's a very interesting aspect to all of this. And, and also how women reading about the French resisting the Nazis was a very inspiring, um, mo- another motivation for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is there, um, do you have any web pages or social media where people can, can follow your thoughts or, or promotion for the book or anything like that? Um, my next task is a blog for, for the book. Um, but uh, I'm kind of going one step at a time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm not a big fan of Twitter, as, as, I, as I told somebody. Somebody, I, I like dealing in complete sentences if possible. <laughs> but um, I'm I'm toying with a with a website, but I just haven't been able to get around to it yet. Mm-hmm. Okay, I guess people can just search on uh, Cornell University Press or Amazon uh, for specifics on the book. Uh, yes, yes, now. and uh, Cornell will be posting the blog just as soon as I write it. <laughs> oh, I see. They'll be they'll host it. Yes. Okay, okay. Um, and uh, the Society for Military History did a very nice, um, brief, very brief, like one-minute interview and um, did a nice little piece uh, that uh, that would, it must be online at the Society for Military History instead of having, they had an online conference a few days ago and they uh, featured all the, um, all the books that they would have been <laughs> promoting on site. But mm-hmm. they did a nice job of capturing the author talking about the book in brief. Um, hmm. So that's out there as well. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I definitely see this book as, as of interest um, to diplomats or would-be diplomats or anyone trying to shape um, foreign policy in, in any regard to consider things like these, you know, like what these women expressed. I hope so. I really hope so. Um, in reading the Afghanistan papers, some of the, I think they, that's based on the special invest, inspector general uh, work that Congress asked uh, that his work be, uh, that people be interviewed on what they found with spending all the gazillion billion in Afghanistan. And mm-hmm. it was amazing to me. I think they interviewed about 400 diplomats and military officials and aid workers, and several of them make allusions to Vietnam, you know, did we not learn anything about capacity on on money or, or attitudes of, of being as what did Juan call it, so occupation army? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I think there's still room for, for reminders that um, they've been through some of this, and maybe it's time to break the cycle of quagmires. Hmm. Yeah. So that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? Well, um, I would, if you don't mind, I'll close on a on a quote from Ken Burns sure. because he wrote a really nice. I had approached him because I so appreciated his series on Vietnam because um, it wasn't all white guys talking, white diplomats or American military, or it was it was letting the Vietnamese speak, uh, hearing different points of view, and so I was very grateful when he wrote a. Um, a blurb, but it, but of course they had to shorten it really tightly. But um, what else he wrote, I think, is is really powerful, and um, I would love to 
share it with you. Oh, yeah. Let's do two very short paragraphs. What, what holds the sisters together throughout their lives is a shared understanding of Vietnamese society. The sisters intuitively know that something like Win Yu, the poem, the tale of few, represents the soul of Vietnam and cannot be easily appropriated by Marxist-Leninism, France, Catholicism, or American Cold War maneuvers. The communists are clumsy in victory, and their romanticism vanishes. None of the sisters is particularly privileged after 1975, despite deep revolutionary credentials. All had personal tragedies and hard times. What is profound about their story is that they don't feel betrayed by the revolution. In a sense, what holds the sisters together holds the nation together. I'm still digesting that. <laughs> I, mm. I, it's very, I think it's very very spot on. Um, I wish I, I really appreciate um, that sort of summary. I think it's, I think it's very accurate. Yeah, it's a very good one. Yeah, and it's sort of to your point and your question. They don't feel betrayed by the revolution. I, I think, I think they must have felt a little betrayed, but not enough to, um, to not have tried to uh, bring their country to independence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, um, I thank you for speaking with me. Thank you, Chris. I, I'm a big fan of, of conversation and discussion and not so much of, of tweets, uh, so I <laughs> super appreciate this, this opportunity to have a conversation and as well as to share some of the women's own words. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, please subscribe to it and rate it and review it if possible. I have many other options as well to get great military history information. You can find links to interesting military history videos on my Facebook page, War Scholar. You can find links to interesting military history news articles, military history archaeology information, and academic information on my Twitter page, War Scholar. You can find photos on my Instagram page, Chris Alvarez War Scholar. You can find my military history videos on my YouTube page, WarScholar1945. You can also sign up for my newsletter at WarScholar.org or MilitaryHistoryPodcast.com. In the newsletter, I post additional video and news links, as well as regular updates on new military history books being published. Thank you for listening.